Many people call themselves Calvinists that just hold to the five points related to salvation. But is that all there is to being Reformed? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. So Calvinism has been on the rise in the church for the last few decades. It's the idea of you know the, the Calvinistic soteriology, the idea that God is the one who elects who will be saved. But when you look at the Reformation, it started with that. Luther started and, and wrote that his most important book that, that he wrote was The Bondage of the Will, which is about that idea that no one can save themselves, it's that God grants the gift of faith. But the Reformation moved on from then. So when we think about being Reformed, what does it mean to be Reformed? And and answering that question is, it's not straightforward in any kind of way because there's there's different ways you could say that I'm reformed. You could say that I'm reformed because I've got this connection to a reformed tradition, a, a, a Lutheran church or a Presbyterian church, you know, something where you can trace the lineage of that denomination back to specific Reformation moments and specific reformers. But but that's not how the word's been used recently. Like when you hear a pastor talk about, oh, I am Reformed, or, or maybe I became Reformed, what they typically mean by that is, oh, I adopted a Calvinistic view of soteriology. And so in the sense of just somebody describing themselves, that's usually what it means. What we want to probe is, is that enough? Are you going far enough if what you if if you're satisfied saying that being reformed means just holding a small set of doctrines about the gospel and i want to say that it's not enough and and not necessarily not necessarily because of everything else to do with the reformation but yeah because of everything else to do with the reformation because if you think that adopting a small set of doctrines about the gospel that can then live all by themselves is sufficient then your gospel's too small. Even if it's a Calvinistic gospel, it's too right. small because the gospel affects everything. What you believe about the good news of Jesus Christ affects everything. And this, this was practically true in the Reformation. The, the, yes, it starts with, among other things, a Reformation of your view of how you get saved. But there's so many things that explode out of that where you have changes in in all of these other doctrines that we would like to put in separate boxes and treat as something different that we, that we will have different seminary classes about but they're all tied together all of these doctrines are tied together but then doctrine has an effect doctrine changes culture doctrine changes politics doctrine changes family life doctrine just it changes everything that it touches because the good news of Jesus Christ changes everything that it touches. If it's, if the good news of Jesus Christ is rolling back the effects of sin, then anywhere where sin has warped the world and warped human beings and warped human hearts, then a reformation of how you think about that is going to be a reformation for a whole lot more than just a small set of doctrines of how one gets saved. And, you know, the word reformation is actually used in Scripture in one place in most English translations that I looked at. And that's in Hebrews 9, 9 and 10. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, 
concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. In that word Reformation there, it comes from a Greek word, diorthosis. It's from a compound of G1223 and a derivative of G3717, meaning to straighten thoroughly. Rectification, that is specifically the messianic restoration, reformation. But it's two words, and it means to, the second word means to be right. And the first word is to make everything right. So to be thoroughly, to through, right, is what the word means. And so when we think of reformation, it's not, it's just like what you were saying. It shouldn't be thinking of it as just this one area that you fix your doctrine. Reformation is about fixing your doctrine in all areas. And you take what was there even in the Old Testament is what it's talking about in Hebrews, and then you make it right. You make it thoroughly right and not just a shadow, but make it the reality. And I think a lot of times when people call themselves Reformed, they're just looking at soteriology, and they're not saying that I have to make everything right. They just say I need to make this one little piece right. And even if they're not just looking at soteriology, they're maybe just looking at the Protestant Reformation. Because the Reformation that that's referring to is it started when Jesus Christ was resurrected right. and sends his Holy Spirit. And those things that had been pointed to in the Old Testament that were shadows were made real in the world in a way that they had not been real before. And, th- and so that is, the be- that is the beginning of that Reformation that it's referring to. And so if you really want to be truly Reformed, it's not just that you can trace back to the Protestant Reformation. It's that you can say that God being the one who is straightening the world, that, that, you, are in, that you are in line with that. Because hopefully the Protestant Reformation, your argument is, is that it was a return to those doctrines that were in line to what God was doing in the first place that there had been corruption, that there had been walking away from those truths, that there had been a denial of those things, and that you were referring to them, not that, like, that, not that 1,400 years after, after, the, after Christ's resurrection that the church all of a sudden found truth. That would be a really bad view of being reformed. And so, I mean, in the end, I mean, you want to be able to tie back to that, not just back to, oh, the Protestant Reformation. Like you said, it's going back to an old doctrine. And it's pretty clear what old doctrine that really kicked off the Reformation. It was the doctrine of, of who saves. Is it, man's, if it, is it man's wisdom that caused him to be saved, something inside of them? Either he reasons it out or he, he has this little bit of good inside of him that causes him to, be, to seek God. Or is it that God chooses who he will save? And so it's a restoration of you know, Calvinism, I would say. It's a restoration of doctrine from Romans 9, 13 through 21. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay, from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So this is the basic doctrine that that people would assign as Calvinistic soteriology. 
is this idea that he makes one vessel for honor. And a lot of them don't do the second part, which is that makes one vessel for dishonor. But it is all of a sudden taking the responsibility from, for salvation from man to God. And so they then say it's reformed. But even in this passage, when he says that, when he's describing that, he's not saying this is just about salvation. Because he says to Pharaoh, I hardened Pharaoh, which means it's beyond salvation. And yet people want to narrow down Calvinism and to make it just about salvation when it's a lot broader than that. And that's the case that's probably a symptom of the fact that we think that the gospel is just about salvation. Right. We think that the gospel is just about going to heaven and not going to hell. Instead of saying all of the other things that the Old and New Testament say about the gospel. You know, if you read through the prophets who are in that period where they know where what they're in is not it. Right. There's something better coming, and they give all of these descriptions of what that something better is going to be. It's about way more than just who makes it to heaven and who stays out of hell. It's about, hey, there's not going to be oppression like there was, that not every man is going to tell his neighbor, know God, because everyone will know God. It's about everything is going to be different. There's going to be an abundance of the word of God. The glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is sort of what their expectation is going to be. And then that's the good news that when you get a baby Jesus in a manger that the angels want to start telling everybody about and saying, it's here. But we think that it's so much smaller than that if we put the gospel in a box and say the gospel is just about keeping you out of hell and putting you on the road to heaven, as opposed to, no, everywhere you see sin, everything that you see that has been affected by sin, that's all rolling back. That's all moving the other direction now, because Jesus came into the world, and then he left his Holy Spirit behind him. And so if we're thinking, like, what is Calvinism? I mean, the definition that most people would use for it is the five points of Calvinism that describe salvation, which would be, the acronym is TULIP, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. That are kind of describing the these are these are the five characteristics of how Calvinists or John Calvin describe salvation. Which and those aren't even original to Calvin. Um, that actually comes after his death uh, in the controversies with the Arminians, and actually after Arminius's death. But at the Synod of Dort was where it was kind of hammered out to say here are the five points of what what we mean of how we are different. Um, as followers of this theology that, you know, that Calvin explained um, in his writings. But these are the five points where we differ from the, this new Arminianism. Right. So it was kind of a very narrow view of Calvinism, which is very unfair to Calvin, because it's basically, here's the errors you have, and here's what Calvin said, and then that becomes Calvinism, and summed up in those five points. But those five points are far from from being the total of what Calvin taught. I would argue that Calvin was Reformed and not just Calvinist. Right, and it depends on the context you're using Calvinist, too, because you can use Calvinist for the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, where it's not about you know salvation. It's about what do you what do you what's the presence of Christ in the elements? What what does that mean? Um, there's you know I've even I've heard it used for church government. You have Calvinistic church government, but you know the, if you're asking people what is Calvinism, this is what they're talking Some, about. Yeah, if somebody says they're a Calvinist, they're talking about this. 
even though they might agree with him on other on those other things. They're not talking about his view of expository preaching. Right. And they're not and let's be serious, they're not talking about his view of the Lord's Supper. That there's a real spiritual presence there. If you were trying to say what did Calvin what theology did Calvin hold to, it was a very rich and full theology. Right. And and so part of the reason why our view of of even what salvation and soteriology is, is because we have a small view of what God has been doing in the world. I remember 13 years ago, we went on a road trip up to New Hampshire. You were going to do a conference, and on the trip you said, hey, you took several of the guys from the church, and I went along, and you said, while we're going up here, I want us to memorize some scripture, and I want us to read through J.I. Packer's introduction to a, a recently modern edition of John Owen's work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And I remember that being incredibly useful. And I mean, to this day, if I when I run across someone who's gotten introduced to Calvinism and they're kind of saying, I think I believe this, what's it about? I tell them, I would read this. This is a fantastic document. And I mean, and, and one of the first things he says in this is, in the first place, Calvinism is something much broader than the five points indicate. Calvinism is a whole worldview stemming from a clear vision of God as the whole world's maker and king. Calvinism is the consistent endeavor to acknowledge the Creator as the Lord, working all things after the counsel of His will. Calvinism is a theocentric way of thinking about all life under the direction and control of God's own Word. Calvinism, in other words, is the theology of the Bible, viewed from the perspective of the Bible, the God-centered outlook which sees the Creator as the source and means and end of everything that is, both in nature and in grace. Calvinism is thus theism, belief in God as the ground of all things, religion, dependence on God as the giver of all things, and evangelicalism, trust in God through Christ for all things, all in their purest and most highly developed form. And Calvinism is a unified philosophy of history, which sees the whole diversity of processes and events that take place in God's world as no more and no less than the outworking of his great preordained plan for his creatures and his church. The five points assert no more than that God is sovereign in saving the individual, but Calvinism as such is concerned with the much broader assertion that he is sovereign everywhere. And so, I mean, that's kind of what you were saying in a sense, is there's a view that kind of, you have this view of, tulip as if it only pertains to salvation, but in the end it was, this was a, the view of salvation that was just pulled out of a much broader view of how God is sovereign over all things. And the reason why you have to, you know, really hold to that worldview to be a Calvinist is the same reason why it doesn't make sense when people say that they're a three-point Calvinist or a four-point Calvinist and a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist. It's because the five points all hang together. You can't reject one and hold a logically consistent position. You know, it was... You know, if you reject one, you end up having to reject all of them um, because, you know, they, they flow together. They're, they're part of a consistent logical argument. And, you know, this is just taking that another step to say, how do you arrive at um, these five points? Well, you, you have this worldview behind it, the worldview that sees uh, God as the ruler of the universe and a God-centric view of the world. And it's really important, right, because it's like reading the verse where it says that, you know, God turns the king's heart like a water course. You can interpret that as, well, God, the king's the only one God cares about, so he's the only one who he steers the heart of. Or you can say, well, if he steers the heart of the king, then that means he can steer the heart of anyone. And that's kind of the difference, right? Because in Calvinism, a lot of it, times, people say that in salvation, he steers your heart. 
but he doesn't do it any place else. Or what I would say is reform thought says he steers everything and that God just used the most important example, like he did with the king, the most important example of who he controls is the most powerful person in the country, the king. And so you use that as an example that shows that he's controlling everything else. And same thing with Calvinism, the idea that because the soteriology is such that he's showing mercy to who he show mercy, he's showing compassion to whom he will show compassion, because in the most important things, eternal life, he is in complete control. That means he's in complete control of everything else. So it's do you take that and just say, well, that's all God cares about. He doesn't care about anything else. Well, if that's true, why did he take on flesh? If that's true, why did he establish his kingdom? It creates all kinds of other theological problems. Or you can take it the way that it's meant, which is, hey, if he's doing this about salvation, it means he's doing this about all things. Because Romans 9 does follow Romans 8. And in Romans 8, it says, all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. Which means that God is controlling all things, and Romans 9 is the example. So much in Calvinism, what's called Calvinism now It's just about soteriology and not making the leap, well, and even following Paul's argument, which is if it's true for soteriology, it has to be true for everything. And it's even about a pretty reduced form of soteriology. Like earlier when I was talking about saying only salvation, I was really talking about only individual salvation instead of talking about salvation in the sense which really, Scripture even uses it. usually, not even all of salvation, right? R- right. It's usually what it gets right. boiled down to. Yeah, just this very small, what does it take to get saved at the moment of being saved, and and then, you know, a projection for what the rest of your life is like, but not the actual working out of it. That's what Paul writes against in Galatians 3, is that you you say that you started in the Spirit, that the Spirit is what saved you, but then you work it out by yourself. Well, that's kind of the Calvinistic view in a lot of churches is they go, God elected before the foundation of the world. He chooses who's saved. But then that's kind of the end, as opposed to Paul saying that's a different gospel. So if that's all the case, could we do an exercise where we go through TULIP, where we go through the five points and we just say, all right, if this point is true, what are the effects that it has that are bigger than just the individual salvation of believers. How does, how does believing this doctrine actually change the world bigger than just getting some people into heaven? And part of that exercise is to kind of go, this is what the Reformers did, right? I mean, this is how the Reformation happened, is people actually went, wait a second, total depravity. They didn't use those terms because this happens before that, but they understood total depravity. And they said, so then what should government look like, for instance? If you have total depravity, that means you don't want to invest all power into one person because if you invest all power into one person, you know he has corruption, and that right. corruption is going to be destructive. If you believe in total depravity, then all of a sudden you're you're saying basic things about the state of man, and you're you're placing man in a position that's different than the Catholic position was at that time. And and then and you're saying that he's totally depraved in all his faculties and all his capacities, that, that every part of man is touched, not just certain parts. Like some of the people who are arguing with Luther and Calvin were trying to say. Like some would say that, you know, his his reasoning was left intact or his you know, I mean they would try to like reserve, Erasmus said. Right. They would try right. to reserve Scholastic aspects of a man. And <laughs> what was I gonna say? I had something brilliant, Charles. <laughs> 
I tried to get you to go. Um, and so part of the, you know, because people don't think about total depravity much, they don't think about reformation much because total depravity is the basis for, by which you say everything in my life needs to be reformed. If you're not totally depraved, then when you're saved, you go, well, that little part of me, God has exalted that and lowered everything else. If you say you're you're totally depraved, then you go, okay, now I'm saved. Now i got to clean up the rest of the mess. And so then you take every thought captive. Then you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You transform so your mind. You, you transform your mind. All these things, all those verses are really are really taking that idea of total depravity and saying, okay, so now what happens in your life? And your life has to be transformed as opposed to if you just make it about salvation, then – you can continue to walk in the way that you were, and you don't think it's a big deal. But that's not how the Bible treats it. The Bible treats it just the opposite, that once you're saved, that's the start of you being cleansed and being conformed to the image of Christ, like it says in Romans 8. And and part of that, too, is that that's, uh, the depravity is not completely removed until glorification, that everyone on earth it still has sin in them. Um, which also means that the Reformation, they didn't get rid of all the false doctrine that was out there at that time. So, you know, you the the Second London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession may have a lot of good stuff in it, but and it might be helpful as a standard to say, do you believe this? But it's not something that we can say ha- is without error, and we don't need to continue to reform con- or, more it, more. or it or might it, be without air, but it, it's still not complete. There's well, lots just, of other things. Well, it's that not need without. To, and, and, not completely pure of air. Right. Not completely pure of air, but also as a recognition of of the doctrine of total depravity, it doesn't make any pretense towards being comprehensive. That it's a set of doctrines that are answering specific problems at that time. Some of them pretty broad. Some of them very specific. Some of them ones we don't care about anymore. Other ones will apply to the church till the end of time but it's not saying everything as opposed to what scripture pretends towards or actually does which is hey everything you need for life and godliness is in scripture it's not in the slbc or the westminster confessions and so if you think about how it applies to the church in particular right starting there that's always a good place to start if you look at how that thought process works it out in the church. The reformers were all looking at the pope who was saying he was infallible, that if he spoke ex cathedra, if he spoke out of his chair, that that meant that what he said was like it came from the mouth of Christ and that it was infallible. And then all of a sudden you take total depravity. And what does total depravity mean for local church? What it means for local church is is that you don't just automatically take what every what even what the pastor says because you know he's depraved you know he has errors and so a church that's reformed isn't just going well the pastor said it i've heard of a lot of churches that call themselves reformed but they go well whatever the pastor says well that's like contrary to reformed doctrine that's contrary to calvinistic soteriology doesn't matter how and good your pastor is. doesn't matter how good your script yeah, and <laughs> even you look at like a passage like first corinthians 14 where it says that if somebody is is prophesying that if somebody else goes wait a second that's wrong that you listen to them that you hear them you don't just shut them down right or you see the exact the example that's that's held up in Acts 17 10 through 12 then the brethren immediately sent paul and silas away by night to berea When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. 
Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. And so you have this idea, and we talk about it, about we should all be Bereans, right? That you don't just hear it and absorb it and accept it. That you actually have to go and check the scriptures to see if it's so. And that's like a core Reformed doctrine, right, is the idea that every man has errors in their doctrine. And so if you just swallow what your pastor's saying without ever checking it against Scripture, you're going to be swallowing some error. There might be lots of good things in there, but you're going to be swallowing error, and you can't shift the authority from the Word of God to men because that's contrary to the doctrine of total depravity. Well, if you start with a doctrine that every man has error— then you're sort of forced into where can I go where there's not error. Right. And that's what all of a sudden will start exalting your view of Scripture. That, oh, okay, Scripture is more important than what any particular man says. Scripture is more important than what any particular tradition says. That, that ultimately, that's where we have to land for authority. And it's really, you know, you look at there are well-known Reformed pastors that— and I'm not saying that they did anything wrong, but this is the nature of man is to go, I don't want to do the work. Men are lazy. It's part of total depravity. And because of that, any man that reaches prominence, they start to get people that follow them just because of who they are. And the people who are following them are saying they're reformed, but they're not in practice. Because in practice, if they would, were reformed, they would be making sure these things were true themselves. So they say they're reformed because this well-known pastor says he's reformed. But to be reformed, you actually have to check the work that they did. Right. I mean, like, and there's a time to do it, but I've seen plenty of times where people, you know, to answer a doctrinal question, they'll just quote Calvin, they'll just quote the Westminster. And while those are helpful, if you're not proving it from Scripture, you can't use those other ones as standards. And I would especially argue that you shouldn't use them unless you have followed their reasoning to say I agree with their reasoning, that they reason from Scripture. Because you look at Calvin and you look at his, his commentaries, and he's trying to reason from Scripture. But if all you do is say Calvin said this rather than I agree with Calvin's argument, in the one case you're really misleading people and not being helpful. In the other case, yeah, we should look at the people who went before us that reasoned well and say I see their reasoning and how they got this from Scripture. You're, if you did that, you're in the case of saying I'm a Calvinist in the exactly the sense where Paul says don't be that person who says oh, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, right. you know, where you're just where you are associating yourself with a personality as opposed to hey, there's correct doctrine here. Follow me as I follow Christ, right? right? Which is that's what you're saying is, is he looked at Scripture, made an argument, right. and you're saying I recognize that you are following after Christ, and I'm following your following of Christ, not I'm following you because I don't worry about where you're going. And in the end, right, it's we're, it's about the exaltation of the Word because everything in salvation, yeah, this is reformed, this is biblical, whatever you want to call it. The thought is that it's all about the glory of God. And so if you end with a man that the man says it, then in the end that man gets glory. And the point is it has to end with the word because Jesus Christ is the word and then God gets glory as opposed to man getting glory. So it's about stealing glory from God when you hold up these pastors and go, oh, look, they said it. It must be true. No, they said it. and They have errors. Now, on this podcast, if you're listening, obviously there's no errors. But <laughs> but if you go and you check us out, then, then you'll maybe find all we've accomplished something. <laughs> so what are the effects 
of the doctrine of total depravity on government, like church government, family government, civil government, the interactions of those. And it seems to me it goes back to like what Samuel is told by God, right? That when you're looking for this solitary executive, this solitary um, leader, that you're really rejecting God. And that's true in all kinds of things. That's true in church government. If Christ is the head, then who can replace Christ as the head of the church? No one man. You have to be looking and saying, that man is going to have errors. Christ is the only one that can be the solitary at the head of the church. And if we're saying, I'm going to follow the pope, you're rejecting, you're rejecting Christ. In the government, if you're saying, I'm going to invest all authority into this person and say the divine right of kings, right? There were wars about the divine right of kings. And it's this doctrine that's so contrary to the Reformation because you're saying all authority is invested in that person and that person becomes infallible, right? The divine right of king says that whatever the king decrees, that is like from the mouth of God. The same as what the pope was doing. And so when you look at all these things, it really comes down to the idea that there's checks and balances that you have to – that's why you want a plurality of elders because you don't want to lead the congregation into the errors of one man which is what you do because every man has heirs. Right, and not just the plurality of elders, but you also want, I mean, we believe in congregationalism where there's where the, the body has authority as well and that the elders are exercising the authority of the church, but that, that doesn't mean that the body has lost any ability to exercise any authority at all. I mean, that the members of the body were with the ecclesia that are like, you know, they're like representatives in a sense. They actually have responsibility in the church and authority collectively as well. And so that's another check and a balance. And then the next level up, right, which is the congregation can go to another congregation. Like the congregation from Antioch sends that sends Paul and Barnabas to go and say, are you really sending people out to tell them, tell the Gentiles they must be circumcised? And they're going as a congregation. We have a responsibility to talk to other congregations. So there's another check. So there's all these checks and balances at every level when you start thinking about the world as everybody is depraved. Right. And when you simplify it, you start to lose, you start to lose those protections. When you, when you say that this only applies to salvation, you start to think in a much simpler manner. You start to think you don't, you don't recognize the complexity that God has made. You don't recognize even the responsibility that we have to one another. And so you end up losing the ability to even think about those things. And, I mean, I'll, I'll slam, you know, megachurches because it is really contrary to that. There's a lot of Reformed pastors— not even say reformed pastors, although there's more Calvinistic pastors, that don't hesitate to have a 15,000-person, 20,000-person church. They're really ignoring their own depravity in that because if they're the ones that's leading that, in the end, they will be exalted. When Paul writes to Timothy and he says, find other men that will teach others also, he's not saying, let's see if you can gather 20,000 people together because that's really not healthy because the church needs that diversity as a check. We all have one spirit, but at the same time, the true church always has the spirit of Christ. But there's unity and diversity that they should be broken up into separate bodies so that there can be those checks to correct the errors. Because you even see it like in the book of Galatians where Paul goes to Peter and says, Peter, you can't just be eating with the Jews, that you're treating them as if they're a higher class and not not equal with the Gentiles. And so you see that with the apostles that they needed that correction. 
And now we want these mega churches that just, they really don't have that correction in there. You see the terror it is when you have a 15,000 person church to try to deal with the, the senior pastor who is basically ruling and saying, I've got all this authority. That's a really unhealthy situation. It's kind of rejecting the doctrine of total depravity. This is also, I mean, you can see it in, um, you can see it in the in the family. There's a part of it where, I mean, God has made the the father the head of the home, but it doesn't mean that the wife does not have authority. I mean, we've talked about this before. The the Bible says that the husband owns the wife's body and the wife owns her husband's body, and the wife has authority over. I mean, she can go to her husband and say, "You should not be taking our body and doing these things with it. You should not be. If you do this." I'll go, and I'm going to talk to the elders. I'm going to bring this to the, you know, I mean, there are things that the wife has authority. Children have the freedom to, I mean, they can they can talk to their parents about things. They can talk to their elders about things. There are There is not just this, this one sphere that can't be violated in any way. And when you forget that a father can be, de- a father is depraved, a father is subject to, to total depravity just like any other man is, and if you don't recognize that, you can you can turn homes into places of terror as well. And you, you know, I've I've heard churches that taught that it's like you hear the doctrine that says that the only reason for divorce is adultery. Well, that doesn't mean if the husband's beating his wife that she shouldn't call the elders of the church and call the police and have them arrested. There's nothing wrong with that because right. they have their own jurisdiction. It's completely legitimate to do that. If a child that is being abused, that's a child. I mean, if the child, if, right, right? I mean, the God does multiple jurisdictions to protect because the state has a responsibility to stop the the abuse of the weak. So, you know, child abuse. It's legitimate for the state to be doing things to stop child abuse. It's legitimate for the the church to say you're not loving your wife the way you should, or the wife is not loving her husband the way. And so God created all these overlapping jurisdictions to testify to the depravity of man and our need for a savior, right? Because every time we recognize our depravity and recognize the depravity in the system, we recognize our need for the savior. So again, it goes back to this is about the glory of God. Man is insufficient. Man is insufficient as a king. He's insufficient as a father. He's in, he's insufficient as a mother. He's in, I mean, in every way, we need to have these checks and balances because of depravity. And that brings glory to God because it's testifying to our need for God. Right. And now, now where you've got it where men are, you know, because people are looking at the sins that men have committed and then they're saying that women are you know, women don't have the same frailty that men, you know, women make better leaders, women make, and so there's a part of it where, I mean, you can see where we're overcorrecting because the church hasn't, the church hasn't recognized the doctrine of total depravity, and so the world is trying to correct for our, our failure to recognize these things, our failure to actually deal with the sins of man. In a lot of the way that feminism gets its power in terms of getting a group of people to follow it, it says, look at how messed up men made the world. If women were in charge, it would be better. Right. Well, that's rejection of total depravity. They're right. acting like that, that, no, it doesn't matter who's in charge until crisis comes and until all corruption's removed, there's going to be problems because we're depraved. And men aren't more depraved than women. Women and men are both equally depraved. Their, their tendencies towards sin are different. But it doesn't mean they're not equally depraved, right? That I mean, that's a. I mean, there are people who are going to go, wait, no, women aren't as depraved as men, and there's a problem because we've swallowed and that lie. Feminism's been trying to sell it for years. 
television shows, commercials try to sell the idea, right? The the husband's the stupid fool that's conspiring with the child to get to do something that's dumb. And to get away with it from the wife, right? I mean, this is a classic, right. you know, form, and and it's just this rejection of the idea that everybody's depraved. Should we move on to the next one? How about unconditional election? How does that play out in the church and in the world when you just narrow it down to salvation? So, I mean, one of the things is, that, I mean, whenever when you don't have this doctrine right, you start to make discrimination between men on things other than. God's grace and God's glory and things that that are not the distinct that God does not use to make the distinction between them whether it's anything from making you know making decisions about you because you decided that your culture is the best culture just for arbitrary means whether it's whether it's racism whether it's there's anything that you use to say that God is not the one who is working out his will in the world that God is not the one who is doing these for his own glory Anything you use like that, there's a part of it where you start to have, you're not looking at things through God's perspective. You're starting to let your own, you're making yourself God and saying you're the one who elects things and chooses things, that you're the arbitrator, that you're the one who gets to make the arbitrary decision. And really, in the end, it's God that gets to do those things. And when we, you know, to take it to a narrow subject like evangelism, right, it it completely changes the view of evangelism. Because if you think of evangelism from a non-Calvinistic perspective, it's about winning somebody. If you think about it from a Calvinistic perspective, it's about the glory of God. Now, God is glorified more when he decides to show mercy, but he also is the one who decides who shows mercy. But when you increase the knowledge of him by evangelism, even if that just increases the judgment on that person, you have fulfilled the purpose for unconditional election, which is to bring, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So when we think about evangelism, we should be thinking about Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so evangelism is about increasing the knowledge of the Lord for his glory by expressing who it is. And some people will be saved, some won't, but it really changes the purpose, it changes the way you do evangelism, because if your goal is to persuade the person, your focus is going to be different. It's going to be, how do I argue to appeal to this person? If your focus is to bring glory to God, you're going to spell, to say truths that should cause conviction to come upon them, if God shows mercy to them. It also broadens the scope of what you think of as the knowledge of God, in the sense of it's not just about preaching a gospel message to them. It's about how you approach justice. It's about how you approach and call out, because in the end, you're interested in, God is interested in righteousness. God is interested in destroying the works of the devil. So it, it ends up being that what you think of as having an effect on people isn't just a specific gospel message. It's, are you proclaiming the truth of God in the world? You know what I mean? Are you proclaiming the broadness of God's truth? Are you, you know, Because in the end, there are times where what people react to, people, you can make the gospel message something that's not offensive, but in the end, if you're actually dealing with sin, when you deal with sin, that's frequently what offends people. And so there's a part of it where when you strip that out, you end up just trying to, like you said, winning them. And so it even changes the nature of your message. It changes the nature of, of what you think of as the knowledge of God. And it changes so much more. The, the messaging starts to change in so many places other than this. If you If you have a doctrine that says that salvation is not dependent on anything specific or particular about any individual other than that God showed them favor, that there's nothing special about that person, 
then it, it just resets. It turns it turns the, the lens so that it's not looking at man, but it's looking at God. And then you start to say, well, then it's all about God. I mean, that, that's why you, you have that, that quote from Packer at the beginning where he's saying, hey, it's this whole view of history. If you start saying that the way that God works in history is not because of anything special about any particular group of people, any particular person at any time, then you think about history in a different kind of way. It, 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 and then it has practical aspects, too, of, okay, well, how should I worship God? Because, well, what he's done for me is not about me. It's about him. Should should my worship be oriented towards things that are about me, or should it be worship that's oriented towards things about God? I mean, you change this doctrine, and you change church order with it. And definitely you change the idea. I mean, you know, the, the regular principle of worship, it was such a central doctrine to the Reformation because everybody's going— Wait a second, it's not about me getting a religious feeling. It's not about me walking in the cathedral and feeling the awe and feeling the organ and the, the deep tones of the organ moving my spirit and making me feel like, oh, I now have experienced something. It's about what does God want? And it's a huge change. And you see a lot of you know, so-called Reformed pastors that are much more, you know, I'm still trying to do something to appeal to the audience, which isn't what reform does, it's about being the focus being on God and not the focus being on man. The center of the world, the center of the universe being God and not what's pleasing to you or to me or to anybody. One thing that's very related to this, with, and it applies to, to witnessing, but it applies in everything else when we think about the unconditional election, right? I mean, in Ezekiel it's talking, in Ezekiel 33, 7 through 9, where it's talking about that you're like a watchman that's sitting on the tower, and if you see if you see the army coming and you don't warn anybody, then you stand guilty. And it, you know, in Ezekiel thirty three seven through nine, it says, "So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked man from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand." Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. And we can think of that with, I mean, it's very clear in terms of salvation. But there's a whole bunch of other things that when you take that idea of unconditional election, that God has elected people, which means he's also elected everything else that happens. And when you think of that and you go, well, I did my best to save this person, like physically save them, right? I did my best to feed my family. I did my best to fill in the blank. And you go, I've served God the way I should, and I'm not guilty before God, and I don't need to be going, I should have gotten a different outcome. Unconditional election feeds the idea or, or, or causes the idea to be that should be adopted by every Christian is we're not to be a, an ends-based people. We're supposed to be a means-based people. We do what God says, and what God elects to do is what he elects to do. And we don't sit back and say, well, if only, I should have tried this, I should. The question is, did you obey God or not? Did you obey God to the best of your ability and best of your understanding? Because that's where our duty is. And so throughout life, throughout evangelism, you can evangelize to somebody and they walk away and you can go, I expressed it the best I knew how. But it's also in everything else. When you see that person that you're going, well, I should have helped these poor people and I can't feed them, but 
God didn't give you resources to feed them. So you go, I did the best I could. And you can be satisfied with that and say, you're done and your responsibility before God, instead of saying their problems now rest on me and their blood is still in my hands. It lets us come back to the idea that our comfort is in God, that God's the one who's working things out, and our responsibility is to do what he's put before us. It's not to achieve a specific end that we decide what that end will be. We don't get to decide that end. So are we ready to get controversial? Sure. Where, where are we? We're, I mean, we're at limited atonement. Sure. So we're, we're at the one that if somebody says, I'm a four-point Calvinist, this is the one that they're leaving out. If you think that you can put individual doctrines in boxes all by themselves and then treat them as if they have no effect on other doctrines, then that's how you can get to the point where you can say, oh, I can accept four of these but not this one. If if maybe what you're doing is you're saying, hey, I've got proof texts for those four, but the, there's, the proof texts for this one don't work, then that's how you could say, I'll take four and not five. But really, they do all hang together. They they do all build on one another. So total depravity is saying something along the lines of everything about man is depraved, that sin affects everything about man. And then unconditional elections following up and saying, well, there's nothing special in any particular man or any particular part of man that God uses to judge salvation. So you get to the next question of, okay, so who does God pick to save? And and how? And limited atonement is the part that, that really pushes back against the American evangelicalist heritage that says Jesus died for all people. And, and by that means that the salvation, that, 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 and by that has the small view of salvation that when it says Jesus died for all people, it means Jesus could save all people and yet doesn't actually save any because it's waiting on the responses of people. Well, if you're waiting on the response of people, you're denying total depravity. You're denying unconditional election. You don't get to, you you know, you, you can't cut this one out and hang on to the other two that we've talked about. Right, because if God chose who he's going to save, then that's who he atoned. And people want to argue against limited atonement, saying that limits the value of Christ. But God the Father and God the Son conspired as to who would be saved. That doesn't limit the value of Christ. That's just what they agreed to. They could have agreed to show compassion on everybody in the world if they wanted to. They could have agreed to show compassion just on one. They're God. They can do whatever they want. And so a lot of people look at limited atonement and go, oh, that just means you're you're minimizing Christ. But Christ says in Romans 9 that it's about maximizing the glory of God, that this is his glory to show compassion to whom he will show compassion. I would admit a limited atonement as a marketing problem. There are ways that you could say it that are not the negative, that they're the positive, that the one of the things that was convincing for me when I was wrestling with this doctrine was it comes down to the question of does God actually save anybody through the work of Jesus Christ or does he just potentially save some people and then wait on them to respond which which one of those is saying that which is that, very clearly against Ephesians 2 <laughs> right but which one of them is in which one of those is God actually displayed as being more powerful 
the one where he's only potentially doing something and then waiting for human action, or the one where he actually does something by shedding the blood of Jesus Christ, or the blood of Jesus Christ actually is effective, independent of human action. And I do think, I mean, I understand what you're saying about the marketing problem, but I think it's also intentional to have that that marketing problem because the reality is people have to suck it up and accept God is who God is. <laughs> and, suck it up. And I think that's that's part of the naming of the doctrine is, I mean, they're pushing against Arminius, which is how they get it. But at yep. the same time, it is also, they're out there at the time in the Synod of Dort going, tough you don't like the way this sounds who cares it doesn't change it from being true because we don't we don't get to make things you know what's true and what's false it's either true or false so when we go and look at how does limited atonement how does it apply to the world outside of salvation i mean one of the things i would say is it's the it is absolutely establishes justice and that the mechanism of justice is very important you know i mean it i mean there's a part of it where i mean this is the whole you know is when you get into the mechanisms of the limit of the atonement is, you know, did God atone for everyone and then he still sends some to hell? So, you know, you've, you've, your sins have been paid for and then he still— Double jeopardy makes no sense right. in being in and the so, Constitution and if so, you I mean, don't believe in right. limited atonement. God cares very much about not just justice but the mechanisms of justice that they, that they conform to the laws of justice itself. And, I mean, so this means justice is incredibly important in the world. We did an episode on due process where we talked about how, I mean, America had, America has a due process problem. America has become a place where many people don't get justice anymore, and God cares a great deal about justice. And part of that is if you don't, if instead you go, we need to manipulate the system, we need to control it, we need to say this is what the outcome should be, then you have to reject justice, just like we were talking about, that they all hang together. You can't, like, separate them. Right. Either you're going to be just or you're not going to be just. I mean, one of the things that I see with limited atonement is I, I hear a lot of evangelicals that, you know, that are missionaries that are sent overseas, and they go— you know, and we did an episode on this too, just to throw a plug in for the episode on self-defense. But just the idea that, well, that person might be saved, so I should be willing to die to let that person be saved. No, you should obey God. If you believe in limited atonement, that person is coming to commit murder, you should use physical force to stop them. If necessary. If necessary. Right, right. You should use physical and potentially deadly force to stop them if necessary and you don't go but then i'm sending them to hell no you're not (laughs) if god decreed that's how they were going to die it has nothing to do with you sending them to hell that's god atoned for who he atoned for and he can stop them from committing murder if he decides he wants to atone for them or that he did atone for them right the idea that that you that man can send someone else to hell that that man by his actions can thwart the work of god Anything that touches on that, anything that goes in that, goes in the face of limited atonement. Because God says there is a, there are a people that I am saving, and nothing can change that. And I have atoned for them, and those people have been atoned for, and that that is sacrosanct. And so it it changes the view of human agency, and it doesn't it doesn't remove from us responsibility, but it changes the focus of our responsibility. Our zeal is not to be for the outcome, but our zeal is to be for glorifying God through what He has told us to do, to obey God. That I mean, you look at what is the duty of man. I mean, this is I mean, you wouldn't think the duty of man and limited atonement, you know, but they are very tied together. Right, because otherwise we inject our quote-unquote wisdom in there. If we think it's not limited in the end, we have to inject our wisdom in instead of just saying 
God saved who he saved. So what's what's my role in this? It's to obey and not to come up with a clever thought. And that's I mean that's really fundamental to if you're rejecting this doctrine it's because you want to inject your wisdom. You want to inject your agency. You want to put yourself in. You want to exalt yourself. You want to bring God down. You're you're pushing in if if you want to say that you have any contribution if you want to reject this doctrine, what you're doing is saying that I have some contribution to make to my own salvation. Well, that the trickle-down effects of that are, are humongous. We did a plug in another podcast. <laughs> we did a podcast on prison systems and the problems there. And I'm I'm this penitentiaries. <laughs> it's going to sound like a stretch, but the whole reason that prison systems exist is because we think that it's possible to come up with a better idea than God did for how to deal justly with somebody. And we think that all that you need to do is you need to reform somebody, put them into a reformatory. Or make them pay penitence. Right. Instead of saying, no, what's the just thing to do? what What is right and equitable for dealing with a particular crime? And not, oh, they were just in bad circumstances and that if we put them in the right circumstances, they could make the right choice. I mean, that's Arminian theology. You just need to put somebody in the right circumstance and then they can make the right choice. So, I mean, next is irresistible grace. How does, how does irresistible grace work itself out in the, in the, in theology? And I think when you start with the individual, when you just limit it to irresistible grace is about salvation then it's just about making that profession of faith. When you even think about it, what irresistible grace is, it's a lot more than just the salvation, right? It's about he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, right? The, it's not just irresistible to make you profess faith. It's irresistible to make you walk in greater and greater holiness. It's irresistible to be sanctified. It's irresistible to be glorified. It's irresistible in a lot more ways than just talking about salvation, And when we think about irresistible grace and how it plays out, it gives a real expectation in the church that that a lot of churches don't hold the expectation that people will actually change over time. But what it says in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 is, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So God is saying, my irresistible grace is not just that I call you and you can't resist my calling. It's then I then make you holy. Because without holiness, no one will see God. And so irresistible grace is a lot broader than how it's usually defined, which is just when God calls you, you answer, because it's irresistible. Right. I mean, this is a part of it where our our view of salvation has become very small, whereas what you're saying is, is the salvation can be viewed as the entirety, right? I mean, is the right. salvation is from the fact that God elected you, but also that God like, that God called you. In the verse that said, everyone, he did this, he did this, he did this. It marches through and said they're all guaranteed. And that's all a part of your salvation, which is all a part of God glorifying himself in the world, which means, you know, I mean, that that one thing that you think of is just, it's just one part of God guaranteeing that he's going to work all things for the good of his people. If you make salvation small, you're making God small, right? is what you're saying. That, that if you say that it's possible to resist God on this point, 
then can you say God is sovereign? And but on the other hand, if you if you cop to this, if you say, hey, you know what? There's nothing that I can do to resist the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit will do when the Holy Spirit will want to do it, and nothing I mean, it kind can, of blows like like the wind where you don't know. And where it's nothing going can it's resist going. its will. You know, if you say that, then you say, well. When you apply that to salvation, that's just a beautiful thing. That's this one little tiny subset of everything that God is doing everywhere for all time and in all history. And and again, this ch- this changes your entire worldview about what God is up to, and how God works in the world, and then how you're supposed to respond to that. Right. I mean, when you look at something like the end of Romans 11, where it talks about that everything will be th- in God, and you know, and th- that's. You have to understand that that's a picture of God's irresistible grace in the world. I mean, that God's that nothing can stop that from coming about. Nothing can prevent that God's God's purposes from coming about and what God's purpose are. So it's it's not this just this tiny. You know, people think of it as oh, you got you got sucked into this and that's it. No, it's that God has a purpose for all of these things. Which is what it means that he ha- that his grace is irresistible. The Lord said to my Lord, "Come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." God's irresistible grace is how you get First Corinthians fifteen that He will return when all enemies are defeated except for death. Right. And so His irresistible grace is that He is going to cause all of His enemies to be defeated, which is a lot more than salvation. Right. A lot more because it goes on in Psalm 110 and says he'll fill the valleys with dead kings and he's going to rule with a rod of iron and he's going to destroy the evil. And I mean, and his his people will be volunteers in the day of his judgment. And so you look at all these things that are all these promises and that's what irresistible grace is. I mean, the grace is his grace is irresistible and it's not just going to transform believers. It's going to transform the whole world and has been and will continue to be. It's not like it's just going to start sometime. It already has. The world is totally different than it was 2000 years ago. We look at the differences in our lifespan and they're, they're really significant how much it's changed since, you know, we were born. And yet you consider the 2000 years. I mean, it's just unbelievable how much the world has changed. That's all irresistible grace. So when he says in Daniel Daniel 2 that you know the kingdom of God is going to be the stone that beats all the all the the kingdoms of the earth to pieces so there'll be chaff on the summer threshing floor it'll be like chaff on the summer threshing floor I mean that's his irresistible grace that is going to happen it will come to pass not by the strength of his people not because all of a sudden his people are so great but because God's power is irresistible and it is that great and he is going to show that much grace to the world that he's going to destroy all the enemies. It's Psalm 2. It's all of the kings of the earth getting together and plotting and God looking at them and laughing. Right. I mean, you can look at Genesis fifty eighteen through 21. This is after Jacob died and Joseph's brothers came to him and said, you know, they were scared that now that Jacob is dead, that Joseph is going to take revenge on them and kill them all because what they had done about selling them into slavery. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I mean, 
when you look at this, I mean, God brought a plague on, God brought a famine on the earth, and he did all these things. And one of the things he's saying here, I mean, Joseph is saying, do you not understand that this is the grace of God in the world? That, I mean, all the things that you did in this one place, that it was for this greater thing so that this day that God could save many people alive. And do you believe that he would do this big, something that big back then and not do that all the greater things that we've seen since then aren't aren't just a greater manifestation of this, that there aren't larger things that he's doing in the world that he will do in the world that are all part of the same grace. Or, I mean, obviously this is a picture of Jesus Christ, right? All right. of Israel rises up against him and all his brothers kill him and they send him into the grave and he rises up and in him all the nations of the earth are blessed just as irresistible it was for Jacob's sons to sell Joseph into slavery, it was all done just for a picture of what the gospel is. Right. It was all just a picture of the gospel, and they couldn't resist it. And it was still they were guilty of it because they chose to do it. And so they stand guilty, but it also completely irresistible, and it was the grace that was going to save, physically save many, many people alive then. And it's the way that everybody, every Christian was saved was by the same picture. The Jews rose up and killed Jesus Christ so that we could have life. And that's irresistible grace. And they couldn't resist it. Look at it. He he does they he even says, look, if these same miracles were done in Bethsaida, if they were done in Tyre, if they were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented, and you didn't repent. We don't look at that that, that way, but that's irresistible grace. Right. Because God wanted them to put Christ to death, because that's how the world would be saved. Just take a look at Joshua as a case study for something like this, for somebody who so clearly believed God is in control of everything, and I will make decisions based on the fact that God is in control of everything. And look at how that affected the economic decisions that he made. I mean, he he believed God was in control of everything, and therefore he took steps towards preserving enough food that the entire world would eat. The entire world would come to Egypt to eat because of what he did. He made these, you know, he, there's, there's all of the drama with his brothers, which is sort of just like this tiny little soap opera on the world stage for what's happening. He's reforming politics in, in Egypt. And then you get to the New Testament where it talks about all the great things that Joseph does in faith. You know, it's, it's talking about all the great things that people do in faith. It doesn't mention any of these things. It mentions that Joseph was a man of great faith, he believed that God was a God who was in control of all things, that he prophesied that when Israel would leave Egypt after a time of slavery, that they would take his bones with him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, take my bones. And that's, you know, it's to, to that extent that he said, hey, you know, you, you can build a kingdom off of this doctrine if you just believe God's in control of all things. And it's so much bigger than just, oh, God's in control of my salvation. So we come to Perseverance of the Saints, which basically says that God who began a work in you will continue this work in you and will keep you and, and, and will, will carry you through so that those who are being redeemed, there will be a picture of redemption in their life and that, that God will keep them from falling into sin and from being destroyed by sin, from being corrupted by sin. And this is this is probably, I would say, the one that when people get it when people get it and think about it they probably think outside of salvation more than some of the, more than the other ones 
I mean, total depravity is probably one that people think of by nature somewhat outside of it just because they do think, oh, this is sin. But total uh, perseverance of the saints, people do recognize that it, it affects a person's life over the course of their life. Right. But sometimes they treat it as just God will protect their salvation. And this is where it gets diminished. It gets diminished down to he'll keep that inner part of you safe even though you may go and just completely destroy yourself in sin and you may plunge headlong into sin and your whole life is about sin. And by doing that, they really destroy the doctrine. Right, because they reject the irresistible grace in order to hold to perseverance of the saints. The irresistible grace is I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Right. I mean, the irresistible grace after salvation. In perseverance of the saints, they go, well, they persevere even though they don't walk in his statutes. No, sorry, that doesn't work. Right. And that plays out in real serious ways because the real serious way that I see it playing out mostly is in church discipline. There's a lot of churches that don't want to do church discipline. They go, oh, this will drive the person off. And so they say that they're saved to the end, but yet they don't treat them that way. If they treated them that way, then they would confront them in sin because you go, if they're saved, I can't drive them off. It's impossible for me to drive them off from the church because saints persevere. So I should confront my brother, the person who's professing to be my brother who's in sin. I should confront him because if he flees, it's a sign that he was never saved. And if he doesn't flee, he'll be cleansed. And it shows that he'll persevere. And so I think there's a lot of professed belief in it. Even you know most churches that are one point, this is the point they would hold to. They would reject all the other points, but they would go, but those who are saved persevere. They might call it preser- – they'll call it sometimes preservation. Right. And I mean like their emphasis is on just the fact that you can't lose – what they do is they just go, you can't lose your salvation. Because God preserves you rather than right. that you Right, as persevere. opposed to that it does any th- – right, that there's – that the Holy Spirit actually does – cares about anything in the world, that the Holy Spirit cares about holiness. And so there is just – I mean, so – I mean, I definitely grew up with that. I mean, in fact – I remember growing up there was a there was a tract in, in front of my church and that was the and, and that was the argument about this one is I've never heard of perseverance of the saints, but I've heard of preservation. And he really and at first I thought he was just changing the terms, but what he really meant was is just that God will not let you lose your salvation, even though the Holy Spirit may do nothing in your life. The Holy Spirit and so there is a real problem with it. Because in the end, Scripture says, "He who called you to a work, he will complete the work in you." I mean, and and that he will me- conform you to the image of his son. And it doesn't mean nothing, right? I mean, it does not. It doesn't mean nothing about this life. It doesn't mean nothing about this world. There's a real problem when you believe that about salvation. And when you believe that, then you end up saying, "Well, the way we can save somebody is not to confront them in their sin, because if we drive them off from the church, the church is how they're preserved. The church is how they're they save instead of going." like the Bible teaches, where you should do that because you have a responsibility to be to be your brother's keeper. Right. And that if God is going to preserve him, your confronting him in sin will not drive him off. Right. It's not possible. And there's probably somebody who's hearing this who's going, so that means you could just do whatever you want and you can't drive him off. Understand, it doesn't mean <laughs> that you're a Christian. <laughs> Right, exactly. If you can be very much in sin and do whatever you want. Right, you can go out and decide you can do whatever you want to your brother. And, and if your brother is elect and if your brother was, was chosen by God, he won't be driven off. But you might be revealed to not be a follower of God. And, and I think that's a real problem is, is we use these doctrines to all of a sudden go, 
it means something about other people's salvation that they, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't show us things about, about us. And right. there, there's a real problem with that. And I mean, the other thing that it, that perseverance of the saints should do in the church is cause people to be bold in preaching. And this is the example that's used in Scripture in Hebrews 6. It says, you know, basically pour out the water of the word on the field. And those that are saved, they'll flourish and they'll they'll grow and they'll be productive. And those that are weeds will show to be weeds because the word will never cause somebody to lose their salvation. It will never – you can preach it boldly. You can preach it directly. You can preach the hardest passages. And nobody will ever lose their salvation through the preaching of the word. But people want to – to tone down the preaching of the word because they're afraid they'll offend. But that's not what the word does. Now, that doesn't mean you can just mishandle the word. Right. But it means that in handling the word, this is this is what the people need to flourish. And don't worry. Those that are weeds will appear to be weeds, and the answer is, oh, well, they're weeds. And those that are righteous will become more zealous, more righteous, more holy. They'll walk in a different way. Don't worry about anything other than obeying God. Right, right. I mean, it's it's that. I mean, because there's this be part clear of in the teaching of the word, right. yeah. And yeah, you know, the other the perseverance of the saints. The other way that I think it also manifests itself in the world is with the church. Right, God is going to preserve the church, and so we can look at the church and we can see all the problems in the church. But it doesn't mean that there's not a remnant. There will always be a remnant, and in the end, the remnant is the one that will win because it is the one that will persevere, and God brings the church down to just the remnant through persecution, through other things that causes the church to change. But what you see is the true church will always persevere. It's not going to go anywhere. Jesus Christ came and he establishes church. He breathes on the apostles and gives it life and says, receive my spirit. And it has life in that. And it will go until it is ready for that wedding day. And the church will exist and it's never going to disappear. It's going to persevere. And so the world has tried many times to wipe out the church in various places, and it never succeeds because God will preserve his church. Right, because I think when you say perseverance of the saints, then you have to ask, what are the saints? They are the body of Christ. They are the church. I mean, and so it's, it's that he's going to cause that to persevere, and then you start asking yourself, what does it mean that the body of Christ perseveres in the world? What does it mean? I mean, and that starts to have real impacts on things, right? I mean, that starts to have real world-altering things. Right. And it means that the the church will continue to transform the world because it will persevere. It really resets your expectations for what the church is going to do, especially if you if, if you came to Reformed Doctrine after having grown up with some sort of version of dispensationalism where your expectations about the success of the church are relatively low. This like horrible, not even low. <laughs> this this doctrine by itself is just saying reset those. God is doing something with his people individually, but you put them all together and the work that God's doing with those individual people multiplies. The saints persevere. God puts his people in churches. If you hold the dispensational eschatology, you look at evil in the world and you go, the world's getting really dark. That means God's going to take us out of here soon. If you hold to a reformed view, you look at the world and you go, if the world's getting dark and the church isn't doing anything, it means God's going to judge us. It means if you're good for nothing except being trampled under the feet of men, you're going to get trampled under the feet of men. Right. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, because if you have the wrong view, you become like the, the guy who buries his talent in the back, you know, bar- right. buries, his, buries his talent in the ground. And that's what the church has become as opposed to, what does his master say? You know what I do. You know how I do these things. And yet you've acted without any fear of me. 
And there is this part of it where the church is acting like that today. Through everything we've been doing in this episode, we've been talking about how if you just narrow the five points of Calvinism to just be talking about salvation, you're really missing the whole basis of Reformed thought. But I kind of have a problem with calling anybody Reformed anyway, because the reality is is that that until Christ returns, his enemies are to be defeated, which means that we have to recognize that we still have errors. We still have to fix things. And so there was a doctrine that was in the time of the Reformation of Semper Reformanda, which really means always reforming, that continual reformation. And so, you know, people should look at themselves as the reforming and not as the reformed. Yes, we have reformed certain of our doctrines, certain of the Roman Catholic doctrines have been fixed. But the church needs to be thinking we should still be reforming. Right. It's real, words really do matter. And when your idea is is that when your term is like a settled thing, not settled in the sense of that you've settled on doctrine, but that you've settled on practices, that you've settled on on how and on how even you're going to think about those doctrines applying to the world, that can have a negative effect on the way you think about things. It can it can cause the church to, like you said, feel like we're done, as opposed to there's still a lot of work to be done. In the world, things are either growing or they're decaying. That's pretty much how the world works. Almost nothing stays static. I mean, even rocks, they break down over time. They're decaying slowly, but they're still decaying. And like everything, the way God created it, you're either growing or decaying. And when people say we're reformed, what they can do is end up putting a stake in and say, we're going to maintain the position that, that the reformers had. And that should never be the point of the church. That's not the point of the church. The church is always supposed to be standing on the shoulders of the people that went before it so that it can go further, so that it can advance. And what we're seeing in our lifetime is the church is really decaying in doctrine, right? Doctrines that were widely known 200 years ago, a lot of people don't know them now. And we're seeing some of that coming back with Calvinism over the last few decades. But still, there's just the attitude of the church needs to be, not that we're satisfied with where Calvin was or we're satisfied with where, where Gill was or we're satisfied with where Owen was. It has to be that we're moving forward and we're advancing because you're either advancing or you're decaying. Right. Right now, there's a lot of people who would say, I'd just be happy if we got back to where the reformers were. And, and, and that's, that's rejecting the promises of God. That's rejecting that he is sanctifying his church. He's removing the spots and wrinkles. It is getting cleansed. It is getting more knowledgeable. It is getting more understanding. It's getting better in its practices. And that takes real work, and the church needs to get back to that. And it's almost putting yourself on the, you know, the Catholic side of the Reformation rather than the the reform side of the Reformation, where you're saying that, well, what we need to be doing is looking at church tradition and going back to that, and, you know, we don't really need innovations. Let's just do what we've always done. Um, and, not, and you know, the standard is Scripture, and we recognize that everyone since then has had some form of error in their practice. And so we need to be working to conform ourselves to Scripture and not, um, while the traditions can be helpful, but they aren't, they aren't a law to us like, like Scripture is. And that's kind of like what I was saying at the earlier in the podcast about how the confessions, the confessions are very useful. But what we should also do is recognize that, yeah, not that they're perfect documents, but they are definitely lacking documents because they're only dealing with the, with the things that the church was being pushed on at that point in time. I mean, that they were dealing with at events at a specific point, and you've all of a sudden narrowed the church greatly when you say the confession is all that should be believed. No, that was to respond to a, a time in history. 
one of the things that we've been pushing on throughout this episode is that if you believe these particular doctrines about soteriology, but that you've kept them caged in little boxes, that it's time to let them out and recognize that they have implications and consequences that are much bigger than just about soteriology. And that's our message to anybody who says that they're Reformed or they're a Calvinist and and that they think that that only means something about salvation. But honestly, that's our message to any Christian who's living— or that's our message to any Christian who's listening to this podcast and holds to any set of doctrines that they think are compartmentalized. It's, you know, you always need to be saying, what are the further implications of this? What are the further applications of this? How does the fact that this doctrine is true, how does the fact that this thing about God is true, this thing about man is true, what does that mean for me and how I think about the world that God's put me in? And then how do I then become more holy and more useful to God? I mean, it's really Hebrews 5, right? It's that you learn things, and that's through use that you're able to discern good and evil, that you grow in your knowledge and become equipped to be a teacher. It's by taking those things and putting them into practice. And if all you do is make it about salvation, you make it about your profession of faith and not the other things, then then where does Hebrews 5 fit in? All of a sudden, the practice doesn't matter. But the point of doctrine is to practice it, and it is to grow in it, and then say, oh, now I see this, so that means I do this, and then I go do that, and then that makes me see new things in Scripture, and our, our application keeps expanding and expanding, and our understanding expands at the same time. And in a sense, that's the level to which we want to get back to the Reformation. It's not that we want to get back to the doctrinal level of the Reformation and stay there, what we'd like to do is get back to that kind of an attitude of the Reformation where it was, whatever Scripture says, we're going to do that. Whatever we find in there and whatever we draw out of it, that's the thing that we're going to do. And very related to that is a zeal to desire to understand God more, a desire to to, to worship God by and to glorify God by having a deeper understanding of him. The church is kind of satisfied with a little bit of God instead of really saying we need to keep improving because the more we improve, the more we walk in greater holiness, the more we understand doctrines better, the more we see who God is and the more we taste his glory. And the church needs to get back to that zeal for the glory of God. Because like we said in there, we, when we talked about irresistible grace, the reformation that's going to happen, God will reform his church. And so by our actions, we either show ourselves to be part of the church that he's going to be reforming and continuing to reform or not. God is going to reform his church. God is going to move it forward. Are you part of it? Right. Everybody he receives, he continues to cleanse and and makes like his son. And everybody, you know, and that, that applies collectively to the church, that he's going to move the church forward. This is what he's doing in the world, and that, that that's what we should desire to be a part of and have a zeal to do the work to be part of it. Thank you for joining us as we consider just how we should be thinking about the world through through taking doctrines and applying them because it can't just be I look at this thing about the nature of God and this is what it means to my salvation. It has to be I look at the nature of God and this is what it means about my family, what it means about my church, what it means about my education, what it means about my vocation, what it means about my exercising the right to vote, all these things that we talk about on this podcast. It really comes down to the idea that we need to be reforming all of our thinking 
because that's what it really means to be reformed. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching. Thank you.